This episode is going to discuss race, history, the United States, African Americans, politics, the Civil War, the 1619 Project. What could possibly go wrong, right? I'm Dr. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. podcast listeners and welcome to another episode of Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. I am Dr. A.J. Nolte, Assistant Professor of Government at Regent University's Robertson School of Government. Once again, views expressed in this podcast do not represent those of either Regent University or of the Robertson School. Please remember that you can rate and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast provider, assuming your podcast provider in fact has a mechanism for rating podcasts. If they do, please give us a five-star rating as this helps other podcasts find us when they click on similar podcasts and look for podcasts like this. I want to also let you know that you can find us on social media. As always, Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte is our main social media page on Facebook. You can also find us through the RSG Facebook feed on both Facebook and, uh, and, and also on Instagram. So February is Black History Month, and I suspect that if it has not already, Black History Month is, is going to become controversial. And while some of the controversies that have arisen in sort of recent time are a little bit suspect to me, particularly when people start stop toppling statues of Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass on racial justice grounds, I think that there's something to be said for the concern about Black History Month that Black history should really be woven into all of American history. And so, you know, I think that there is sort of a, a legitimate aspect of that concern. In fact, are we doing a disservice to history in general by sort of segregating off a month for this history rather than weaving it in throughout? I think that one of the counter arguments that I might make to that is the degree to which for most Americans, I would say, most Americans who are not in, in the African-American community, black history is still something of an unknown topic. Until last year, I'm not sure that that most folks, and I would put myself even in this category, really knew what Juneteenth was. Juneteenth was a holiday commemorating the abolition of slavery in Texas, the last the last state, and that is a holiday that is of extreme or a date that is of extreme significance for a large segment of the population and should be of significance to all Americans, because slavery was uh, an, a, a stain on the republic, and it was something that was fundamentally incompatible with the ideals of the nation. It was one of the most glaring ways in which our ideals as a nation uh, did not match up to our practice. So let me say a couple of things about American history in general, how black history, I think, does and, and should fit into that uh, and, and that story. And a couple of sort of my favorite uh, figures and, and emphases when thinking about black history and black history month. Uh, as somebody who teaches classes like American political thought, who, who teaches in sort of the realm of history and politics, things that I wish our students in school knew more about uh, in terms of black history. I think American history, Americans are often, when we think about our own history, blinded by our own lack of understanding about the rest of the world and blinded by our lack of understanding about human nature. On the first part, the, the lack of understanding of the rest of the world. American exceptionalism is perhaps most evident when you view America comparatively to other countries in the world. And you start to say the, see the ways in which America is exceptional. I use exceptional here in the empirical rather than the normative sense. Not saying that America's exceptionality is a good thing or a bad thing, but just that it is a demonstrable fact. America is, compared to other countries in the world, kind of weird. And it's weird in some fascinating ways, but most mostly in ways that tend to emphasize individualism, individuality, and so on and so forth. Hold that thought in mind, because when we talk about one of my favorite figures in black history, that's going to be relevant again, because he is perhaps one of the quintessential thinkers associated with American individualism. And if he's not, he should be. So America is unique in a lot of ways as a country. And the uniqueness of America is something that becomes more evident when you compare America, America's political system, and American realities to other countries. At the same time, America looks less exceptional when we compare our practice, ourselves, to our own ideals. Okay, so I find that most of the debates about American history and how we should view American history are not necessarily always talking about the same thing. So are we comparing American practice 
and American institutions and American historical realities to our own ideals? Or are we comparing America to other countries? And I think we ought to be doing both. We ought to be doing both. It is one of the great ironies of the, the historical debate that it is precisely the conservatives who are the most insistent that America should not try to be like any other country that are kind of following a historical method that compares America to other countries far more. And it is precisely the progressives who say, who, who say we want America to be more European in some ways. Um, much of the progressive project is, is a project of trying to import political ideas and institutions from Europe into the United States. It is precisely those progressives who do not compare the United States to other countries, but in fact are most rigorous in comparing America to its own ideals and pointing out the ways in which it falls short. You need both of those elements when you're looking at American history. You need to understand, first of all, that America's uniqueness, part of what makes America unique is that it is founded on ideals. It is a nation for which one of, if not the primary component of our self-understanding is the ideals enshrined in our constitution. There's always been sort of a push and pull uh, in, in the United States between the land, the people, and the idea as the core constitutive element, that was a hard word to say, I think perhaps the pronunciation there is constitutive, element of American identity, right? So the land, of course, the, the idea, and the people. And these, these three elements are sort of the three elements that run together to, to form the nation. And in many ways, the idea has shaped both the land and the people. And the land has, has shaped the people and the idea. And the people have reshaped the land, of course, and in many ways have sort of constrained the application of American ideals. It is simply a, a well-known fact that when you have a set of ideals that you, you say are going to be the foundation of your country, the application of those ideals are always constrained by the realities of the people that live in the country at the time. And as the ideals gradually reshape the people, you will see those constraints start to shift. So that kind of dynamic relationship is at play throughout all aspects of American history. But it is particularly acute when we start talking about black history as a part of American history. So the history of black Americans, because black history is shaped by the interplay between the land, the people, and the idea. It is shaped by the land in the sense that whether a state was slave or free in American history was largely determined, although not exclusively determined, but largely determined by the nature of the land, the ways in which the river system flowed, the types of agriculture that could most easily be supported, the ability or lack of ability for uh, internal trade within various different colonies. Right? So the land in some ways shapes the, the, the way in which different colonial economies are are uh, constructed. And that has a very large determining factor in whether a state ends up becoming slave and free. I emphasize state because slavery was legal because it was legal in the British Empire in all of the colonies before the American Revolution. And there are two really substantial waves of abolition. One, of course, is the Civil War, the 13th Amendment, where, where abolition sort of reaches its apex in the United States. And the other is the American Revolution, in which uh, there are a wave of immediate and gradual abol uh, abolitions of slavery and emancipations of slaves that happen in states where slavery was legal before that. So again, kind of skipping ahead to the end of things that I wish people would know knew about American history uh, and, and, and black history in particular. One of them is that, that the American Revolutionary War, which is sometimes uh, seen as a war of, for, and by uh, slavers entirely, um, is a war that in, in part at least, leads to a wave of manumissions. So the land is instrumental in shaping the colonial economy, and it is the land that determines those colonies that when they become states are basically in a position where slavery is not economically viable. And as soon as slavery is not economically viable, the ideals of the revolution also take hold. So that is one way in which the, the land then shapes the impact of, of uh, Black History and Black History Month. The other way in which the land shapes this whole uh, issue of slavery, uh, which of course slavery is, is integral to the origins of Black history, is in westward expansion. As the United States expands westward, you start to 
see this conflict that will eventually rip the slave states and the free states apart about the expansion of slavery. The slave states understand from the beginning that there is a disconnect between American ideals and the realities of slavery. And because of that disconnect, they are constantly afraid of what might happen if more free states than slave states are admitted to the Union. They also understand that there is a disconnect between the capitalist economy that's beginning to develop in the North. Capitalism is not an, an economic reality that is, is dominant at the time, but capitalism is starting to emerge in the North at this time. And capitalism as an economy is fundamentally incompatible. Capitalism is based on the idea of free labor, on the labor theory of value, which says that if you work, you get paid for your work, and your work is worth the wage that you get paid. That is fundamentally incompatible with the uh, slave system that exists in the southern states. And so as you start to see the westward expansion, westward expansion, which in the north is enabled certainly by capitalism, the, the, the wars of expansion, of course, are not necessarily capitalistic in their, their origins, but expansion in the north has a decidedly capitalist flavor. And the expansion of the free labor system to more states is seen as an existential threat to the slave power. And that reality drives American history in the first half of the 19th century. And that reality, by the way, um, as we start talking about some specific figures in Black history, will drive the desire of Black Americans early on to participate actively in the free labor system. The most, one of the most ardent pro-capitalist figures in American political thought in the, the mid-19th century is Frederick Douglass, and we'll discuss why in a little bit. So that, that's so much for the land. So then you have the people. You have very different types of immigration into different types of parts of the country. And so the people here, again, are, are very important. So in, in, in most cases, in, in the Anglosphere colonies, they're initially founded by merchant adventurers. But the types of settlers that they get are different. And again, it's dependent by the land. It's, it's determined by the land. You have an aristocratic upper class, uh, people that either were lower gentry or wanted to ape the manners of the lower gentry in Britain, who really wanted to establish themselves as lords of the manor. And they were attracted to the South because the South gave rise to this plantation-style agriculture that allowed you to sort of live as the lord of the manor. And so th that culture becomes instantiated in that region because of, of the land. In the northern states, you get more folks that are interested in settling and hacking a farm out of the wilderness and, and being a farm and being a farmer. Well, what kind of people are you going to get who are willing to do that, right? You don't necessarily get to lord it over a bunch of peasants. You're just going to be your own sort of boss. You're going to be your own master. Well, you get people that are cranks, people that are dissatisfied with the majority opinion and, and the majority uh, settlement in the society that they live in. And they're so dissatisfied, they want to pick up stakes and leave, right? So that's where you start to get your Puritans and your religious dissenters and your Quakers and everybody else that settles in those northern states. And so those types of folks tend to be very idealistic, very skeptical of authority because they're they're cranky, they're on the edges of, of the settlement, they're maybe a little bit more skeptical about having authority imposed on them. And so they, at the same time, are religiously zealous. They are very, this is the Bible Belt, right? The North at this time period is the Bible Belt. New England for the beginning of American history is the Bible Belt. That starts to shift later on. Uh, that shift is a little outside the scope of this particular podcast. So what's the implication for black history? Well, as we will discuss in a couple of weeks, we have Dr. or, or soon to be Dr. Currently Professor Albert Thompson on the podcast. One of the challenges of sort of recreating the aristocratic lifestyle in the South is that you're not going to get a lot of Englishmen who want to come over so that they can be peasants on the land when they're coming from a situation where they're peasants on the land. They're going to be prickly, they're going to demand the rights of Englishmen, and they're not necessarily going to work in the conditions, and conditions which, by the way, are uh, pretty hellish if you're uh, an Englishman. Being at the bottom of that sort of agricultural system in the South, uh, it's hot, you're from the North Sea region, it's not as hot there, you're not going to want to do that as an indenture. And so, yes, there are indentures and indentured uh, servitude is, is sort of seen as the way to go for a while, but eventually it becomes clear that indentures are not going to stay. They're not going to stay bound to the land. And so you have to have imported labor. 
And so then you pick up, of course, uh, the system that exists that was established by the Spanish, the Portuguese, and others of uh, bringing over enslaved Africans as your labor force, uh, particularly in those sort of agricultural areas. Slavery is exists in the North. I don't I want to say that it's not extant, but it's not the same kind of economic driver. It's, it's not as significant a component of the economy because you've got smaller farmers. You've got smaller, uh, you know, you've got small farmers. You have some what are called patroons, particularly in the Dutch areas, and they want to kind of do the aristocratic thing as well. And so they, they try to bring um, higher level of slaves. So New York has one of the highest rates of slavery in the northern states and, and as a result has one of the most gradual um, manumission schemes that's adopted uh, after the American Revolution. But aside from that, there's, there's just really not as much interest in or even ability to engage in the type of slave-oriented agriculture in northern states. So what, the, what, means, what this means is that you've got a population that is brought in as enslaved workers, and they are brought in to sort of be the equivalent of serfs, but they're not serfs, right? There, there's, with, with serfdom, there's this idea of at least slight mutual accountability, um, but because there are essentially no laws protecting the status of, of slaves because slavery is illegal in England, so it's something that's entirely uh, you know, colonial. There's no legal code. Uh, there's, there's no sort of recourse. And what you see is that the aristocratic element in the North, and this is sort of my reading of it, partially my reading of it, um, has quickly developing a, a problem. Um, talk about the land again. So if you look at the colonies, the way the colonies are set up, You've got this, this coastal area that's really good for this plantation-style agriculture in the east of each of the colonies. And then you go west and you've got the mountains, right? And who settles in mountains? <laughs> who ends up settling in the mountains? It's the frontiersmen, right? It's the, the, the mountain folk. Um, oftentimes it's, it's clansmen from the border areas between England and Scotland and other border areas. These are people who are prickly. These are people who know how to conduct a feud often. These are people who have been engaging in low-level warfare, for lack of a better term, for a long time. Uh, these are, if you are that sort of agricultural component, the kinds of people who you cert they're certainly not going to be viewed by you as social equals. But on the other hand, they could be a threat to your power. They could potentially be a threat to your power because they're going to be highly armed. They're potentially volatile. And... You know, they are going to potentially kick back against the power that you want to wield as sort of the aristocratic class. So what do you do? First of all, you have to make sure that they never make common cause with the slaves. And much of the social system that is established in the South is designed to prevent that, from an aristocratic perspective, horrifying reality from ever manifesting itself. Because the one thing that you can't have is the mountain folk and the enslaved population ever deciding that they get to get that they want to get together and overthrow the aristocrats. That is a terrifying prospect to uh, the aristocratic element. And so everything that you can possibly do to keep those folks separated, and what you do is then you essentially create a racial caste system. So a race-based caste system in which you put the poorest white person above even the, the most well-favored in this particular system black person. Right? So you create this unbridgeable gulf, and the reason you create this unbridgeable gulf is to stay in power. So that is the system that is established. It is not a capitalist system. That claim has often been made. It's not. It's not a capitalist system. It's a caste system. And it is very explicitly a caste system because all white people are not created equal in this system. You have the aristocratic element on top. You have the poor whites on the next row down. And you have blacks that are in the caste system placed on the bottom. Right? And this is done on purpose. This is not an accident. It's designed in such a way as to keep those two groups from ever deciding that they should work together. Okay, so we start to fast forward. And for a variety of different reasons, the idea of liberty becomes important. Because while these folks are aristocrats, and they've established a nasty little, from, for, again, for, <laughs> that's my American coming out right there, a nasty little aristocratic system. Americans will, will come to the point, and this doesn't happen naturally, but over, the, over time, again, the ideas change the people. Americans will come to the point where they hate aristocracy. Unless the aristocracy is British. Americans love the royal family, but that's, that's a whole different thing. Anyway, so these folks may be aristocrats, but they're still English aristocrats. And they are still have the prejudices of English aristocrats. And one of those prejudices is an opposition to tyranny. Now, tyranny for an English aristocrat has nothing to do with the way he treats his serf. Uh, his serfs, and everything to do with the way 
uh, and I use the term he deliberately because we're, we're talking about male English aristocracy here, has nothing to do with the way he treats his serfs and everything to do with the way his king or the central government treats him. That's what Magna Carta is about. And so these folks have Magna Carta in their DNA, so liberty is a hard thing for them to get around. They just don't necessarily apply it to themselves. But what you start to see developing is these ideas of liberty, these English ideas, become catching. And it becomes not just liberty for the owner of the plantation, not just liberty for the coastal uh, mercantile elites, but liberty, the rights of Englishmen, enjoyed by the frontiersmen in the log cabin, right? Because once you start saying to some of those poor white folks that they are better than another class of people, then they start to say, well, maybe I have the rights of Englishmen. Maybe I have these, these rights. And so that that is beginning to metastasize. That idea is beginning to form. It's beginning to metastasize. It is beginning to subtly undermine the caste system even before the American Revolution. You could think about um, Bacon's Rebellion is one aspect of this, although Bacon himself was, was something of a charlatan. He glommed onto a populist movement and tried to use it for his own ends, which is a thing that happens a lot when you get populist movements. Apropos of nothing, you also have things like the regulator, the regulator uprising, where folks in the back country in North Carolina are uh, rising up against the rising up against the aristocratic class. Now, what you don't have at any point is a slave uprising that is combined with one of these back country uprisings. So you've got those two groups are fighting; they're fighting against the same folks, but they're never fighting together. Okay, they're never on the same side in any of these fights. They're never uh, coordinating. Okay, so there are slave uprisings. There are um, uprisings in the backcountry against domination by the elites. But there's there since Bacon's Rebellion, there hasn't been one where both groups are represented in the, the, the forces that are fighting in this time period. So then you have the American Revolution. Uh, the American Revolution crystallizes these ideas of liberty. And it starts to bring the inescapable realities of the incompatibility of the caste system that exists in the southern state, in the southern colonies, with the ideals proclaimed in the revolution, that, incompa that incompatibility, that disharmony is brought to the forefront immediately because the loyalists harp on it big time. This is why Jefferson wants to blame slavery on the British, because he is implicitly saying in his statement, and, and Jefferson is an aristocrat, but Jefferson is also an idealist, and he gets it. This is inconsistent. So what he's trying to say is, Look, we need to make the argument that slavery was something that was imposed upon us upon us by the British. We didn't do it. Uh, we didn't make it happen. It's it's something that they did. It's a spurious argument historically, because up until five minutes ago, everybody thought, everybody thought of themselves as British. But it's not totally spurious because, as we will see after the American Revolution, a lot of the free states start manumitting almost immediately. So it's it's an argument that is overdone. It is an argument that is completely unacceptable to a large swath of Southern opinion, particularly in the Carolinas. It is interesting to wonder if the Carolinas had been held by Britain and the U.S. took Canada, you would have had a very, very different uh, development of the United States because the Carolinas are the engine of pro-slavery sentiment. I wonder if you actually get something like what happened in New York in Virginia if they don't have the Southern solidarity of the Carolinas and later Georgia. Georgia's a, another one story that I want to address really quickly, because this is another one of those tragedies in, in terms of black history where you look at what might have been. Um, and the might have been here is that the Georgians tried to keep slavery out. Okay. This is the thing that I wish people, again, another thing about black history and how it intersects with American history that people need to understand. The slavers were never content with their boundaries. They were never content with their own borders. They were always, always, always trying to expand slavery. And they always, always, always saw a free territory as an existential threat. So James Oglethorpe forms, for, founds Georgia. Georgia is meant to be a colony where essentially for, for poor white Englishmen to have a chance, right? For, for the, the yeoman to become yeoman farmers, debtors to become yeoman farmers. He recruits uh, some of those those uh, those hill folk, the Scottish Highlanders, he recruits uh, German Lutherans who are coming as refugees, and he bans slavery. And when Georgia's run by the trustees, slavery is uh, not permitted in the colony of Georgia. But then you start having people immigrate from South Carolina. You start having people wanting to come in, uh, becoming citizens of Georgia, 
and uh, to, to, to sort of buy up the land and export the South Carolinian system into Georgia. That culminates in 1750 with a decree that slavery is legal. 1750, okay? Only 27 years before, 26 years before the American Revolution does slavery become legal in Georgia. And then after that point, the South Carolina gentry come into Georgia and just completely take over, such that by the time of the American Revolution and then the Constitutional Convention, Georgia is essentially yoked to South Carolina in its attitudes. But that was a takeover. It was a hostile takeover by, by pro-slavery interests, right? So this is another thing that we have to get clear about in our history when we talk about Black history and how it intersects with American history. The slavers were the expansionists. They were the aggressors from day one. They wanted to spread their system into other places, whether those places wanted that system or not, whether the people that were there originally wanted that system or not, they wanted to spread it. And so that aspect is critical to understand um, because this was, and, and they did it because they felt insecure. They were insecure about freedom and they're in, insecure about the possibility of uh, freedom, but particularly the possibility of any black person being free because that would undermine the whole caste system. Because if you had the idea that a black person might be equal to a white person, then you might have the idea that these two groups, the, the poor whites and, and the enslaved blacks might get together and might decide if we're all equal, then we all equally have the same right to overthrow these elites that are dominating the system. So they, they wanted to prevent that at all costs. And so we start to move forward now. We start to, to see some sort of more recognizably uh, historically known figures. You could see, you know, the poet Phyllis Wheatley. You could see another element of our story that starts to come into to focus with the Revolutionary War, which is black soldiers in the U.S. military. Until the American Civil War, the highest number of black soldiers that ever fought, fought in the American Revolution. And when they fought, they usually did not fight in separate units. They're segregated units in the American Civil War. The units are not necessarily segregated. Where there are black soldiers under arms, more often than not, as, as I recall, they are not in separate, uh, separate segregated units. There is a proposal advanced by John Lawrence, who is a um, you know, son of the Southern aristocracy, but a, a fairly committed abolitionist, um, who wants to train and equip on his own dime a regiment of, freed, of, of uh, soldiers who would be promised their freedom if they fought. And so this is something that is uh, completely shot down by the Continental Congress. But uh, Lawrence was, was committed to this idea. But nevertheless, there are a fair number of uh, black soldiers under arms in the American Revolution. And so you have this moment at which um, it seems as though things are heading in a certain direction. Tobacco plantations are starting to fail. Other, other cash crops are not working the way that they uh, had in the past. Um, and there is a pres presumption that is beginning to grow even among the elements of the aristocratic society, uh, that slavery is a necessary evil that should be abolished if possible. And then, of course, you have the invention of the cotton gin. And this is the one area, if you want to blame like capitalism <laughs> in, in some way for the, uh, the continuation of slavery, this is it. It is the ingenuity, it is that American ideal of ingenuity and entrepreneurship that slaves, saves the slave system because the cotton gin is invented. And the cotton gin makes the preservation of slavery in the Deep South profitable. So that then sets things up for uh, the controversies that will swell into the Civil War. And I've covered that in previous episodes, so I won't go into it in quite as much detail. Focusing on the Black history component, so what we see that is fascinating, and this is this is a time period in which we start to have some pretty decent written sources, is that the attitude of black authors that we have at this time, I would say from, from what I have read, and I, I will say this is an area where I'm not as much of an expert as some folks, we're getting an expert onto the podcast to, to talk about this in more detail. But the attitude is, is more along the lines of calling America to account for its own ideals, saying these ideals are great, we want them, we want this. We want more of America than we are getting. If there's one attitude that I would say encapsulates black American political thought from the American Revolution, probably until at least 1900, and then it's still a, a significant strand moving forward, if not still the dominant strand, is not an antipathy to the American project, but a sense of we want more of America 
than we are getting. We want to have the same rights. We want to have the same access. We want to be able to enjoy the blessings of liberty and the ideals that you enjoy, but we can't. And so we are calling for and advocating for that. And the most eloquent expression of that, of course, is something that I've mentioned several times on this podcast before, What to the Slaves of the Fourth of July by Frederick Douglass, which I think encapsulates a broader strand of thought. You'll see it in, in not just in Douglass, but in, in other thinkers as well. And so that aspect of political thought, I would say, is kind of formative. And, and, and it remains, if not expressed in exactly those terms, I would say it probably remains a, a fairly important strand of, of thought and a fairly important formative idea in the African-American community today. So what, in fact, begins to change things is that the, the, from the, the Southern aristocratic perspective, disaster happens. And that disaster is the American Civil War. And it's not necessarily the invasion from the North that is the disaster. It's the fact that you have white unionists and black soldiers joining the war. Something like 25% of the Union army was from the Confederacy at one point. And that is both black and white soldiers fighting together against the aristocracy. It's not universal, of course. Uh, they're, they're still able to bring in a fair number of soldiers. In fact, the majority of, of Confederate soldiers are from the non-slave-owning classes. One understudied fact about this, of course, is that desertion rates are quite high. Um, and as David Williams, I, I mentioned his book, Bitterly Divided in, in the Past, chronicles, there's this perception that it's a rich man's war, but a poor man's fight. And so the poor man is being fought to keep the rich man in power in the South. That's a very real perception at the time. So you do have a growing percentage of the population that becomes unionist and joins with, in, in many instances, freed slaves or runaway slaves, <laughs> self-freed self, self slave. And, and sometimes, uh, uh, particularly after the Emancipation Procl Proclamation, uh, you start to get actual freed slaves that, that start to join uh, the Union armies. They're, they are not treated equally, by no means. But we come here to one of my favorite figures in black history. Nobody knows his name, and everyone should, William Harvey Carney. If there's one name that you take away from this podcast, it should be William Harvey Carney. Because William Harvey Carney is the first black man ever to win the Medal of Honor. I remember maybe 10 years ago or so, I read Carney's uh, Medal of Honor citation. And it came about in action at uh, Charleston. The war in South Carolina is particularly brutal. South Carolina, of course, is the heart of the Confederacy. It's been the heart of pro-slavery power at this point, really since its establishment. And it was established as, as sort of an aristocratic preserve, uh, named after King Charles and settled by uh, loyalists during the English Civil War, uh, and particularly that sort of cavalier element of, of the loyalists, the, those, those who are really uh, into the whole aristocratic thing. So South Carolina kind of has that reputation. And Charleston is the birth of, of uh, one of the birthplaces of secession because they have their convention first. And so for the Union Army, taking Charleston is a, is a key objective in the war, not just from a morale perspective, but also because, you know, you, you cut South Carolina and you have essentially caused a major blow against the Confederacy. One of the impl emplacements protecting Charleston from the U.S. Navy, because the Navy is, is the lead branch of service is a, a gun emplacement called Battery Wagner. And it is a black unit, the 54th Massachusetts, one of the U.S. colored troops. That's that's the designation that they get that they go under. It's USCT, usually black soldiers with white officers. In the case of the USCT, with a white officer who, who knew his business, um, it's not or, or the 54th. Uh, that was not always the case. Sometimes they did not <laughs> they did not always get the best. It's this weird combination of the, the white officer corps in, in the USCT between like religious abolitionists from the Bible Belt and folks who couldn't cut it in other units in in, in some cases. So. Robert Gould Shaw is, is good. He's he's a young, he's an idealist, he is you know pretty committed to this whole thing. And so his unit goes into action and attacks this position that no one could take. They are not successful. They take horrendous casualties. And this is the theme of the movie Glory. It's one of the two or three best Civil War movies ever made. If you haven't watched it, watch it. And so Carney is the color bearer. 
He's, he's the guy responsible for carrying the flag. Color bearer could be translated in the Civil War as target because everybody wants to take down the enemy's flag. You're essentially, you have to stand there and, and be the guy who's leading everybody forward. And you're not necessarily shooting. I mean, you have your arm, but you're not necessarily shooting. Your job is to be the rally point for, for everybody else so that they can go forward and so that they can go into the charge, which means you're getting shot at a lot. Carney, I want to say, took five or six bullets in the course of the assault on, on Battery Wagner. Actually plants the flag on the wall. And then as the retreat is, is coming back with those bullets in him, um, plucks the flag up, holds it up, under fire again. I think he got shot another time or two. Returns back to the line, uh, hands off the flag to one of the other soldiers and says, well, boys, the old flag never touched the ground and then passes out from, from blood loss and, and multiple gunshot wounds. Keep in mind, William Harvey Carney is born in Virginia as a slave. So he's fighting under the colors of a country that has said that it was legal to enslave him if his state said that it was okay. Whose Supreme Court said that if you know he was enslaved, his master could take him to another state that did not have slavery and that slave that, that his enslaved status would be maintained despite the laws in that state or that if he, if he ran away to that state he could be re violently repatriated or if he was a freeborn citizen of that state who happened to be black he could be violently repatriated if a slave hunter thought he looked like a slave that's the that's the flag right those things are happening to william harvey carney and folks like and, and and you know black folks in general and that's the flag that Carney says he's willing to take multiple bullets to protect. And again, that I think just as the writings of Frederick Douglass intellectually illustrate this attitude of we want more of America, I think the actions of Carney with respect to the flag demonstrate that sentiment in a very vivid and powerful way. I think that the story of the USCT is criminally undertold. The story, you know, one of the things that frustrates me sometimes about the way Black History Month is is done is that there's a there's a justifiable focus on the people who marched in civil rights demonstrations, but there's not as much focus on the people who marched for the colors. The reality is there were 100,000 black men under arms in the American Civil War. And in every war subsequent to that, black soldiers have been a disproportionately high percentage of soldiers in combat compared to their percentage of the population. This is certainly true in World War I. Black soldiers are a very high percentage because they go to war under their commander, Jack Pershing, John Pershing, who's known as Black Jack, who was known for commanding black, black units and commanding them very well. And there are gut-wrenching stories of men in uniform coming home to southern towns and being forcibly stripped of their uniforms and beaten and said we will kill you if you ever wear your uniform in public again by men who did not serve in the military that happens also in world war ii in fact there's a very famous incident of uh, a, a black soldier from world war ii who is beaten to death by a sheriff again who didn't serve that is brought to light by orson wells so it's it's a story that needs to be told and it is an important element of the american story and I think for me, it's one of the reasons why I would say, yeah, you do still have to have a Black History Month, even as you're saying, yes, this needs to be told as, as all of American history, because there are stories that haven't been told, that have been forgotten. There are sacrifices that have not always properly been honored at the time. There are things about the way we have treated people who sacrificed for freedoms that they were not able to enjoy that are a stain on our national honor frankly. And that needs to be dealt with, continue to continue to be addressed. So it's not something that you can just say, you know, it's, it's over. It's not happening now because you have to recognize the fact that these things do have a legacy, right? And, and, and there needs to be, I think, more effort done to emphasize the military side, to emphasize those who actually sacrificed their lives for our freedom. And we're not honored and we're not rewarded for that in the past. And so I still think, I, I think there's some, some value in that. Um, necessarily in the sense of, you know, saying that this is, this is this injustice and there should be, you know, uh, financial reparations or, or something like that, but there's a debt of gratitude that has not been paid. 
So that is, I, I think for me, is again, you go into stories that, that haven't been told that need to be told. I think there's a perception on both the left and the right that there's this antipathy between black Americans and the country. That there, there this, and I think that story is just, just historically is not borne out by the hundreds of thousands of men who put on the colors and carried a gun and fought for the freedom of the United States at home and abroad. That story just does not, that, that idea that there, there is or there ought to be this divide, right? Uh, or that saying that to call, that, that calling for justice, racial justice, is or ought to be something that is antithetical to the American project. You know, whether you, whether you say that it is from the right or you say that it ought to be from the left, you have to reckon with the fact that there are hundreds of thousands of men who put on the colors and carried a gun and with their lives said otherwise. Because this is part of the American story. It's part of American history. There is a debt of gratitude to be owed. To be owed. There is work still to be done, and that work is to be done because it is a monument to the sacrifices of those who died in the past. One of the questions that has come up in the past, and that I've addressed in, in, in the past, is this question of gratitude and justice, right? So we, how, how can we both seek racial justice while at the same time recognizing the debt of gratitude that we owe to our country? And I think this is part of it. Uh, that a debt of gratitude to the country requires us to continue to strive ever more for the ideals of the country. And I think that is never a completed project. And so, you know, I think that's, this is, this is a part of that. Remembering that story is a part of that. But I also want to, now that I have, have said something in terms of the need for racial justice, I also want to say something about what that means. Because now we start to get into the question of political philosophy and the question of thought. And here again, I go back to, to Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass's main, he, he, first of all, he is, he is one of, if not the greatest political philosopher of the 19th century, and he is an embodiment of, both in his life and thought, the American spirit of the time. So I'm not saying one of the greatest African-American political philosophers, I'm saying period. If America has a political philosopher who represents the American ideal, it's probably Douglass. You can critique that, say it's too individualistic. I know a lot of people do. But if you want somebody whose thought is, is the most representative of it, it's Douglas. Douglas's theoretical concept is self-ownership. The idea that I cannot be owned by another person because I own myself. He crystallizes uh, in his thought the idea of no property in man, that, that a human being cannot be property of another. That is an important idea, the idea of, of self-ownership, that you cannot be owned by another person. There are ways that could be construed, perhaps, that, that I might not agree with, but there are certainly a lot of ways that could be construed, construed that I think are, are good and are very central to American political thought. And so that is, that's the legacy as well, the idea of self-ownership. Douglas is very skeptical of solutions that we would say now are from the left. He's not a socialist. He's very antithetical to socialism. He is he's a fan of Adam Smith. He's read Adam Smith, uh, both Wealth of Nations and Moral Man and, and Immoral Society uh, seem to be documents that he was familiar with. He's read Ricardo, uh, who's another uh, political philosopher. You can find his, his comments on what he learned from Adam Smith in uh, his letter, A Friendly Word to Maryland. I've been unable to get a full quote of, or a full copy of this in accessible hard copy. Otherwise, I would uh, read you guys the, the specific quote. But that's that's the letter where he talks about his views on political economy, uh, and they are much closer to Adam Smith. Uh, he also is very critical of socialists because of the ways in which they put their views above slavery, and he's dismissive of the argument that is made by some socialists that wage slavery is as bad as slavery. He is, he is dismissive and contemptuous of this argument. He says it's ridiculous. He is, by the way, correct. That is a ridiculous argument uh, that for some reason is coming back in vogue. It's one, it's, it's one of the things that the socialists and the pro-slavery ideologues agreed upon. And so hearing that type of argument from folks associated with the new history of capitalism is really weird. I think that probably it would be unfair to say, 
everybody today should, you know, who is, is going to advocate for racial justice should share Douglas's political philosophy and Douglas's thought. But at the same time, you kind of have to be familiar with it. If you think that black political thought started in the 1960s, you probably need to read some more stuff. And frankly, even if you think that it started with the debates between Booker T. Washington, W.E.B. Dubois, you need to go back a little bit further. Because there is a historical legacy of thought that goes beyond that. And that I would say is formative. It is not an unmitigated, unnuanced embrace of all things American, but it is an embrace of the American ideal from Douglas. He's got his critiques. His critiques are usually pretty good, particularly given the expression of it at the time. But he is far from giving up on the American project. And so I think that should give us a certain amount of pause. The idea that, not just of, of Douglas, but the idea that even in conditions that if we're going to be objectively honest about history, we're far worse for African Americans than they are today. In many ways. Not in all ways. Uh, but... Um, you know, certainly there are some social issues that have arisen subsequent to that, that you could argue in some ways conditions are not better. But those are probably ways that if we started talking about them would make some of our friends on the left rather uncomfortable. When we start talking about issues of family breakdown, when we start talking about issues of how high abortion rates are and the systemic racism involved in the way abortion has been conducted in the United States to the point that I've seen some statistics that say that in 2019, I believe it was 50% of pregnancies among black women ended in abortion. That, to me, would be evidence of, of systemic racism that has perhaps gotten worse than it was in, in these times when abortion was not legal, and at least you had a chance to, to be alive. But we're probably not going to... I, I don't imagine too many folks that want to have the anti-racism, systemic racism, you know, 1619 Project type conversations are really actually interested in talking about that one. For some reason... When they talk about Black Lives Matter, I don't think those are the Black Lives that they are looking for. But by, by just about any other standard other than family breakdown and abortion rates and, and those social issues that, again, you're not going to find many people on the left that want to talk about that. Aside from those issues, it's hard to argue that if you were a Black person living in the South in, in 1917, 1918, or living in the South in the 1860s, that you weren't substantially be, uh, worse off <laughs> than you would be in 2020. So why is Douglas not given up on the American project? Why do you have hundreds of thousands of, of men taking up arms to fight for this country if it's so irredeemable? Why even during, during World War I and World War II, again and again, are people making this decision? And I don't think you have a good answer if you're coming at it from a hard left perspective other than false consciousness, right? And whenever you start talking about how the vast majority of people in Group X are exhibiting false consciousness, then you're probably not actually talking to people that are in Group X and asking them why they're doing these things. You're assuming that you know better than them, which is problematic on a number of levels. So Black, Black History Month, in conclusion, is very important. We need a sober, serious, comprehensive look at these types of issues we need to, to look at some of the forgotten heroes. William Harvey Carney, men who fought in uh, the American Revolution, Barzillai Liu, uh, Adam Pierce, and others. There's, there's a longer list of names, but it, it's escaping me right now. Other uh, Medal of Honor winners who oftentimes did not receive their awards until much, much later, often posthumously. These are all stories that need to be told. The story of how this system came to be, needs to be told. A system that was dictated by the land and embraced by, by the people, at least some of them, but was always contradictory to the ideal of America. And eventually, uh, the idea, and to a certain, a certain extent, the, uh, the land, or at least the majority of the, the land as the land expanded, eventually began to wear away at that system. Broke it down, saw it reconstituted, uh, um, to, to a large degree, not completely, but to a large degree. Broke it down again, and we're going to talk to Professor Thompson about that when he comes on to the podcast, because that's something that he's done a lot of research on. And it's certainly not the vestiges, the vestiges of that live on in, in ways that are problematic and dangerous. 
And I would say that there are people that still, today, to this day, systematically try to keep working class, white, non-elite whites, and African Americans politically divided. And I'm not just saying those people are on one side of the political aisle, necessarily. But what I am saying is, that is a dynamic that has played itself out over and over and over again in American history. Because it turns out that when you get those two groups on the same side politically, things start to happen in a significant way. Which is something that we'll discuss more in, in further podcasts as well. So that's going to wrap for this uh, Black History Month episode. Uh, I, sorry, it's a little bit rambling. I had meant to do more of a series on this. February has been a pretty crazy month on a personal level. What with some of the new programs launching at RSG, work I've been, I've been doing um, on the church uh, side of things in, in, in a different hat, a different capacity. You know, prepping for some some other projects and and a couple of other projects that I am hoping I'll be able to talk about more on this podcast later. Some some cool international projects, some cool religious freedom related stuff. But I have not had as much time to do podcasts as I'd hoped in the month of February. We're going to still try to stick to the once a week schedule. We're going to be recording with Professor Thompson in a couple of weeks. The much much ballyhooed, much discussed conspiracy uh, episode is still something that I, I would like to do. <laughs> but, you know, we'll be contingent on, on being able to get the guests that had lined up for that one. And I think that we're going to probably do some more international episodes coming up as well. And of course, there's always history. There's always historical episodes uh, to, to do. So, like I said, that's a wrap for this episode. Please remember to rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. You can find us on uh, all the social media sites mentioned at the beginning of this podcast. And for Blind Politics, this is Dr. Nolte signing off.